Welcome to God Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God Yay or Nay. This is your host, Noor Kidwai. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Dr. Russell Kennedy, the Anxiety MD. He's author of the book Anxiety Rx. He teaches us what anxiety is and how to deal with it and just a lot of shit about what mental illness is that we don't really talk about. So I think you guys are going to love this. Please check me out on Instagram at NoorKidY. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And we're part of the Comedy Here Often podcast network on 604 Records, so check them out too. But let's get into this week's episode, everybody. My guest this week, Dr. Russell Kennedy. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. I'm here with Dr. Russell Kennedy. Dr. Uh, Russell, thanks for joining me, man. Hey, it's great to be here, Noor. It's, uh, it's nice to be able to, to talk with another comedian and just basically banter back and forth. Because we were saying, you know, like mental health of comedians, uh, you know, not yeah, a pretty apt topic for sure. Ha, 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 yeah, um, uh, we could get into that for sure. It is actually kind of hilarious because, um, yeah, you are. Let me just introduce you a little bit. Uh, your uh, award winning book, Anxiety Rx, is uh, about anxiety or struggles with it. And now you're like, uh, you know, your new therapies, treatments with it that you promote on your Instagram and you call yourself the Anxiety MD, right? Yep. That's and my brand, the Anxiety MD. That's how to find me. I, and I, I love that. And you also had uh, some brief uh, stints and you still do comedy, which is like yeah. hilarious. I love that. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah. Why do people like, why do we do comedy when we have like struggles with anxiety? You would think that would be like the last thing. we. Well, yeah. Well, part of it, I think is people get counterphobic. Like I think with anxiety, we get so used to fighting with everything that we just, we mount this energy that we can pretty much do anything. So it's, it's a real, like one of the things I talk about with anxiety is it is anxiety makes you overestimate threat and underestimate your ability to deal with it. Right. So so I think with comics, you know, we need to be a lot of us didn't get heard as children. Like we grew up in families where, you know, a parent was sick or alcoholic or whatever. And we 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 don't get heard. So it's a chance to get heard. So our our drives, we we so badly want to be heard. It over sort of overrides that kind of fear. That's how strong our need to be heard is. It overrides that fear of just being judged. But you know, so many comedians, depression, anxiety. It's just it's such a huge thing. And I, and I'm not sure exactly why, but I think maybe because we didn't get heard as children, and we want to get heard. You know, mm-hmm. we have something to say. And also, I think with trauma, when you're younger. I think it makes you look at the world in a very different way. And I think that different way translates really well to comedy because people go through their lives and they look at something like a sign and they don't think anything different, but we look at a sign and, you know, there's all like, that's funny. Like, you know, DVD repair, you know, who's going to do that? No one's going to do it. No one's going to take, you know, their, their DVD player into a DVD repair shop. Like it just, it just doesn't happen. So we see things that I think, because of our trauma, I think in a lot of ways, we, we dive deeper into things and we search outside of ourselves a lot 
So when you search outside of yourself, you start seeing inconsistencies. And I, the other thing I'll just say before I kind of wrap up this long-winded rant here is that that we're observant. We I think we a lot of times we had to observe our parents and observe our family members to make sure that we were safe or whatever. So we get very good at observing. And when you're very good at observing, you start seeing the inconsistencies and stuff, which is you know prime for comedy. Mm-hmm. And you know what I loved about that, like how you said our trauma is like a child we needed to uh, wanted to be heard. So all of a sudden, like when we come into our adulthood, like this is like such a uh, yeah. thing that we can go into as stand up comics trying to be heard. And as a medical professional, I love how you take trauma into account. Cause I don't see that a lot in like a lot of the medical profession. So I, I have to say, that's one thing I just really respect about you that you can be like, Hey, what happens to us as a child? They, this, shapes our adulthood so much and we have to pay attention to that as medical professionals right yeah it totally does i mean if you look at the ace study the adverse childhood event study back in the 1990s with kaiser permanente in washington state you know they took 17,000 people who were you know must have been reasonably affluent to be you know employed and afford health care uh, and the number of people, like it was a third that significant, experienced significant childhood trauma, like a third. And then it, we followed those people for 20 years and we saw the people that had childhood trauma had the most mental, physical uh, illness. And it was like, okay, well, you know, this has got to have something to do with it. But medical doctors, you're right. We're not trained at all in trauma. We're not, we're trained in, okay, well, this is the problem with the kidney or this is a problem with the lungs or whatever, but we're not trained in trauma. And, and that's the thing. And, and that's what I really wanted to get into because I just saw so many of my patients, like I've never seen a, a patient with fibromyalgia who didn't have childhood trauma. I've never seen a case of irritable bowel syndrome in someone who didn't have childhood trauma. So it, it translates into illness. So we, as doctors, we should know this, but we just don't have the time to deal with it. And I think that's why the medical profession kind of sweeps it aside. Yeah, you think it's a time issue more than- Well, you get seven to 10 minutes for patient, right? And and if someone says, you know, I was, you know, abused by my brother but from the time I was 12 to 17, what are you going to do with that as a GP? You know, like you can't, that's, that's an hour long conversation. And so I think doctors um, avoid that one, because they don't understand how to treat it. And two is they know it's going to take an hour or so to try and really get into this person's history. And then when you refer them out to say, like some people can't afford psychologists because they're 120 bucks an hour. Mm -hmm. And then psychiatrists who, again, aren't really trauma trained that much either. Um, you know, they take two years to get into. So it's kind of like we're we need to learn how to start helping each other. Uh, and I think group therapy is going to be the history of uh, the future of therapy. I think psychedelics are going to play a role in the future of therapy. And I think somatic therapies, body-based therapies, getting into the body, where do you feel that trauma in your body? And can you connect with that? That will, that will have a lot to do with trauma and trauma treatment in the future as well. Heck yeah. Holy shit, man. You just saw, uh, you went into like so many different, I, I, rant. Uh, I start, rant. I'll, I'll warn you right now, Nora, I just start going on these rants. So I'm, I'm happy with yeah. that, but like you went into a few of the different areas I want to get into and we'll definitely get into, but first I, I do want you to kind of introduce yourself to my audience and sure. I, I, I do want a little bit of your history and um, your, uh, your struggles with anxiety and how you kind of came to being like, okay, now I need to like, actually learn to try to heal myself or find a better direction. Absolutely. Well, that's what I, I talk about in my book here. 
anxiety rx that's what i talk about um yeah i grew up um with a mother who is a registered nurse and very dutiful and scottish you know so she was always there for our needs always there for our physical needs uh, and, and then my dad who was uh schizophrenic and bipolar who was very connected actually my dad was very uh intelligent funny uh, nurturing, but he also had bipolar and schizophrenia. So mm. he would be this guy who would teach me how to ride a bike, you know, hit a ball, all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden he would just disappear. Essentially, he'd either be in a mental institution or he would just, I, I just couldn't know what he was going to do next. And it was very destabilizing for me. So what I did was I kind of separated from him because, so my experience was you get this loving, caring, attentive person, and then all of a sudden they disappear. So for me, after a while, I thought, well, I, it's not really safe to love him because if I do, I'm just going to get hurt when he drops into depression or mania or schizophrenia. So I kind of pulled back from that. And if you pull back from, you know, loving connection, you're a sitting duck for mental illness for the rest of your life. You mm -hmm. know, so I, I couldn't pull back from my dad without essentially pulling back from every other relationship that I had. Like you can't just sort of numb in one relationship and not expect it to go across globally to all your relationships. So I've been divorced twice. You know, it's one of those things where um, my relationships, it's, it's almost like the better they got, the more afraid I got. So, and I developed an anxiety disorder because mostly I think I just, I saw how much my father suffered, especially when I got into my teen years and started to really, you know, have an adult understanding of the world. And I thought, well, geez, this is genetic. I, you know, I hope I don't get this. And I just got so paranoid about it that I developed an anxiety disorder. And then I became a doctor because, well, one, we were talking earlier, I never felt heard as a child. I felt a lot of the energy in my family went to my dad and I really didn't get heard. So being a doctor is one of those ways that you're important and you get heard. Um, okay. So, and, and I could help other people. And the other thing is, I think I just felt so impotent in trying to help my father that I, I decided to be a physician because I thought I would help other people. And unfortunately, I, I did. Well, fortunately, I helped a lot of people. But unfortunately, the people that I couldn't help because, you know, in medicine, we can't do everything. Those people would hit me really, really hard because it would remind me of the impotence I felt in not being able to do anything for my dad. So mm -hmm. I developed a fairly significant anxiety disorder, which I coped with and dealt with and did stand up for 15 years. And I still do occasionally. Um, but it is one of those things that that, you know, my life has been one of learning how to overcome as opposed to kind of resting in my own like talents and abilities and being able to just sort of stop and slow down. I'm much better at it now than I was, you know, even 10 years ago, but it is that sort of driven nature. And we were talking about it too. And I think that's what drives us. You know, when we have anxiety, you either withdraw or you go counterphobic. you go right at what, what scares you and you just do it. And um, I think that's basically what I did was I just went right at my fears of becoming a doctor and did that and becoming a standup and did that. I'm also a, a certified yoga and meditation teacher. So I did that, you know, corporate speaking, comedy, comedy was probably one of the hardest though, because as you say, you know, you, you're already anxious. Yeah. And now you put yourself into the, like Seinfeld, Seinfeld has this great joke where he says, you know, um, you know, the number two fear the number one fear of human beings is speaking in front of an audience, right? Number two is death. Number two, <laughs> if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be giving the eulogy or you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's such a good joke. <laughs> yeah, it's great. That is interesting. So when you were a doctor and 
did you have any idea of like what your like what the anxiety your experience was or like was it just kind of was it just no, kind of like no, yeah I went to all sorts of traditional therapies right I went to talk therapy and then CBT was supposed to be all the rage I even went to India like I even lived at a temple in India and studied you know emotions and and prayer and and not that I'm overly religious but you know your the title of your podcast is appropriate because, you know, I found some spirit there, but I never really, I never really got into religion for sure. But it really did show me that a lot of our mental struggles are actually held in the body in, in a kind of quote unquote spiritual sense. So when we start, you know, feeling that and a lot of it, a lot of anxiety, in fact, all anxiety is separation anxiety. It's mostly separation from yourself. But it's really about connecting again to yourself. And I think in India, I kind of learned that, that it's the, the importance of really being connected to yourself because everything's slower there. Like everything is slower. Like you go to North America and it's like, move, 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 move. Everything is slower in India. And I think you, you just have to slow down because I think mm -hmm. anxiety is a general rule <laughs> when your body and your mind become disconnected. So your mind goes so quickly that your body can't catch up, catch up. It's like trying to catch a freight train moving 30 miles an hour. Like you're never going to run up and get it. But if, if the freight train's going five miles an hour, you can probably run alongside of it and jump on top of it. So it allows your body and your mind, when you slow down, it allows your body and mind to connect. And I think that was probably one of the biggest lessons I learned at living in a temple in India was just slow down. There's time. You don't have to do 1500 things in a day. And I think when you get back in a North American society, there is that feeling like, go, go, go. You got to get somewhere. It's like, well, where are you going to get? You know, you're going to get to a point where you need to do actually even more. The more successful you become, the more opportunities come for you and the, and the busier you become again. So it's this real, you know, trying to understand at a very almost ethereal spiritual level, like what, what do I need? And it's mostly just connection from myself and from other people. That's really, that's really how you heal anxiety is you connect with other people and you connect with yourself. Mm -hmm. And you saying all anxiety is separation anxiety. That's such a beautiful quote because. And I got that from, I got that actually from Gordon Newfeld, who's a, who wrote a book called hold on to your kids. Who's a developmental psychologist. He runs the Newfeld Institute in Vancouver, which I've done a lot of, of uh, master's level training with him because it all starts in childhood. You know, mm -hmm. it, all of it starts, even, even combat PTSD, even war veterans that come back with PTSD, the number of them that had childhood trauma, you know, if you compare the population of combat PTSD, the number of them that had childhood trauma far exceeds the ones that didn't. So childhood trauma seems to be a, a risk factor for PTSD because not all combat veterans wind up with PTSD. But if you had significant childhood trauma as a child, you probably will be exposed to PTSD on some level. So it's very interesting how it all pans out. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that is one thing you do try to make a separation from you make a separation from anxiety and alarm. So can you explain that yeah. to my audience? Yeah, well, that was that was LSD. So in 2013, uh, I had Achilles tendonitis. Now I had it also in 2012 before I went to uh, Europe with my girlfriend. And I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to do something about this. So I injected my left Achilles tendon with uh, cortisone and bupivacaine, which is a long acting local anesthetic. So the relief is instant and, and the, and the cortisone healed the, uh, or calmed down the Achilles tendonitis. And then I got it again a year later in 2013. And I thought, well, it worked once. I might as well work it again. 
But the problem with that, and I knew that initially, is that if you inject the Achilles tendon with cortisone, it has a chance of rupturing. So I thought, ah, I'm an arrogant doctor. It'll be fine. And uh, so I did it and then it ruptured. So that was kind of like the, the injury that broke the dog, the straw that broke the doctor's back. And uh, like, I was burned out already from medicine at that point. So I I basically quit and just said, look, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And uh, that's, that's when I burned out of medicine. And that's when I kind of thought I've got to do something different. And I was like, you know, if I'm not going to be Dr. Russell Kennedy anymore, like it was so wrapped up in my identity and my importance and everything, you know, standup was helpful though, because it gave me some, some, you know, voice outside of medicine. Mm. But I always felt kind of constricted, like, you know, you're supposed to be an upstanding member of society as a doctor, right? And I would swear on stage and stuff. I mean, not, I wouldn't, I, in no way would I categorize myself as dirty, But, you know, there was this feeling like I had to kind of, well, I still got this sort of doctor moniker. So I got to make sure that I don't really go outside of that, which I think affected my comedy in a lot of ways. But it was one of those things where I thought I've got to do something, uh, you know, significant. So that's when I did LSD. And what LSD did for me was it, it showed me for the first time that what I called anxiety was this state of alarm that was actually held in my body. Mm. And once I figured that out, then I started really connecting with that alarm in my body, which for me is in my solar plexus. So I wind up, you know, basically when I feel stressed, I put my hand on my solar plexus and then I put my other hand on top of that. And I really feel that compassionate connection to that part of me. And I actually believe that that alarm that we hold in our bodies uh, and people can find it, you know, when you feel anxious or whatever, look, look through your body, like check from your chin to your pubic bone. And usually there's a place that kind of lights up. And it's almost like a, like the feeling when you have a breakup or whatever. And that's, that I believe is your younger self at the age it was traumatized. And if you connect with that part of you, then you have the best chance of healing your anxiety at its source. So what LSD showed me was that this, I have this sort of purple, sharp, hot crystalline density in my solar plexus. And as a, as a medical doctor, I want to have a seizure talking about this because it's so, it's just so antithetical to what I was trained as, as a doctor, (laughs) but finding, finding this area and then basically really focusing on that area and really connecting with it um, has been made all the difference in healing from anxiety because it's really anxiety is just basically what the, what the mind does in response to this trapped alarm, which is the old trauma from your childhood that's stored in your body. So if you can find the source of the old trauma stored in your body from your childhood and connect with that and heal that and neutralize that and integrate that, then it it stops feeding the anxious thoughts anymore. So we spend so much time in North America going to talk therapy and and trying to think differently and positive psychology. and, And we're really kind of trying to treat the effect rather than the underlying cause. So the analogy that I draw is it's like being in a rowboat that's got a hole in it. So you can, you can, you know, bail water and you're going to feel a little bit better because the water level is going to lower. And that's kind of like talk therapy. You go in, you talk to a therapist, it feels better, but you've still got a hole in the boat. So unless you patch that hole in the boat, which is basically find the alarm in your system and heal that, you're always just going to be bailing water. And that's why people come to me and they say, you know, I've been in talk therapy for 20 years and I've learned more about healing my anxiety in the last 60 minutes than I have in the last 20 years, Mm. because I had it, you know, there's no greater teacher than the ones that have been there and kind of out. So I I'm, I'm kind of, I, I have a, I'm not against traditional therapies. 
I just think that we have to start introducing somatic healing, body healing in with all the talk healing, the cognitive part. My wife's a traumatic, uh, a somatic trauma therapist. So I learned a lot from her about how you find this in the body, how you kind of uh, acclimatize to it, how you titrate it, how you go from a place in your body that's really alarmed to another place, say your right knee that feels either neutral or, or good, and then pendulate back and forth between those things because you're trying to neutralize and connect with that old alarm because that old alarm is the child in you that never got seen, heard, and loved. So mm -hmm. you have to see that, see that alarm, hear it, and love it. And that's how you heal from anxiety. It's not from, it's not from talk therapy. You can do talk therapy forever. It's not going to heal your anxiety. It'll make you feel better, but it won't heal it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. So when you're talking about that alarm, that feeling, yeah. and then that anxiety is in your head, the thinking. So a lot of the times we're kind of conditioned to go back into our thinking anxiety totally. because that thinking is running away from the feeling, right? Because the more we think, the less we feel, right? Totally. And, and you hit the nail on the head. No, that's exactly what happens. So we, we have this alarm in our body. For me, it's in my solar plexus. And I don't want to go down there. I don't want to go back and feel that child's pain. So what do I do? I go up into my head. I ruminate. I worry. And what happens is the worries have to get more and more elaborate and more and more scary to keep you in your head so that you don't go back down into feeling town again, because that's where all the pain is. But that's the only way you're going to wind up healing it is going back into the feeling and going through the feeling and allowing yourself to acclimatize to it. Um, Bessel van der Kolk wrote a great book called The Body Keeps the Score. And he said, you know, we're not, we're not basically teaching people to push their anxiety away or reje uh, reject it or whatever. We're teaching people to acclimatize to the feeling of anxiety so that they don't have to compulsively think. Because what happens is you get this anxiety feeling in your body, your brain, which is just a, a mind, which is just a, a make sense machine, feels that angst that you feel in your body. And then it makes up a story that's completely uh, consistent with that alarm. So if you feel alarmed, your brain's going to go, okay, we're alarmed about taxes. We're alarmed about our relationship. We're alarmed about our job, you know, and then that makes sense to the brain. So all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, my relationship's not that great. I hate my job. And that becomes the focus. And then what that does is it creates more alarm in the body, or at least aggravates it, which creates more anxious thoughts. So you get in this, what I call the alarm anxiety cycle. So what you have to do is learn that the anxious thoughts of the mind are actually separate from this alarm feeling in your body. And when you sep separate them, then you can start to heal. But while they, it, it's sort of a feedback loop. So why they keep the alarm in the body energizes the thoughts of the mind and the thoughts of the mind energize the feeling of alarm in the body. You can't get out of that loop. That's all, yeah. Separate them. So you have to learn how to focus on the alarm, connect with the alarm, reassure that younger version of yourself and learn that the thoughts aren't really helping you. Uh, but there is a compulsion for your mind to kind of make sense of that feeling especially the left hemisphere. I've got a degree in neuroscience as well. So again, so that my degree in neuroscience and my doctorate in medicine, you know, when I start getting into this more ethereal anxiety or, you know, anxiety is actually alarm in the body stuff. It is difficult for the two sides of my brain to kind of, you know, um, congeal on this because it's just so different than how I was trained. You know, yeah. I was trained that anxiety is a, is, a, is a mind issue. It's a brain issue. And that's, that's all there is to it. And I, that's not the case. It's actually the only time I started healing was when I started seeing my anxiety as, uh, as actually alarm in my body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and dude, I love that. I like how you said when you start going like your anxiety and start going like, oh, this is because my relationship's bad or my job yeah. stressful or something. Now you're just adding stories to your anxiety, which just complicates healing from it, right? Yeah, you convince yourself. You know, if your relationship is kind of, you know, a little rocky, then if you have anxiety, all of a sudden your relationship is the problem. It's like, no, the relationship isn't the problem. It's, it's your, it's your lack of connection with yourself. That's the problem, which shows up as anxiety, which shows up as, you know, conflicts in a relationship. So it's like, we're trying to, de- we're trying to heal, you know, we're trying to bail water when we really need to fix the hole in the boat and fixing the hole in the boat is connecting to yourself and healing that alarm. Because what happens is your brain loves to have answers and people with anxiety hate uncertainty. So Mm -hmm. when you say to yourself, I hate my job, that all of a sudden becomes the bucket that you put everything in. And then you just wind up hating your job more and more and more when it really has not a lot to do with your job. It has a lot to do with your internal disconnection from yourself. That's really what the root of hating your job is. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I love this. Uh, And so you were talking about how you tried like cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. and stuff like that. And it just didn't really do the trick. And now you're saying like, we need to get into more body focused feeling therapies that help you feel your body, get into your feelings. Um, you talked about with your, was it your wife or girlfriend? Uh, somatic? My wife. Yeah. Uh, she's a somatic trauma therapist. Yeah. Okay. And so can you explain maybe what that is or any other kind of feeling yeah. therapy so we can understand yeah. like this? So there's one called Hakomi. And there's another one that uh, it's H-A-K-O-M-I. And there's another one called somatic experiencing, which is which was developed by Dr. Peter Levine, who's a uh, psychologist, I think, out of California. So so uh, somatic experiencing is what my wife is trained in and what I'm sort of vicariously trained in because I watch her videos. I watch her training videos. And uh, so it's it's all about actually finding the alarm, the trauma that's held in your body. Mm-hmm. And really slowly kind of bringing it to the surface so that you learn, like I was saying earlier, to acclimatize to it so that you can get used to it and, and realize that it's not that bad. If you experienced it as a seven-year-old, yeah, it would seem all-encompassing. It would just seem like it's so painful. But as you, as you become an adult, you get more of a sort of a 360-degree view of it. And you can kind of see, hey, this is me as a seven-year-old. How can I connect with that seven-year-old and soothe him or her? Because that's where the problem is. So what they do in somatic experiencing is they sort of, you know, they track your body sensations. There's something called the autonomic nervous system, which, you know, everybody's heard of fight or flight. And on the other side of that, there's the rest and digest. So there's two wings of this automatic, automatic or autonomic nervous system that we have in the body. So the sympathetic fight or flight, you know, is kind of self-explanatory. It's kind of like the accelerator in our system. And the parasympathetic is the opposite wing of that, which is kind of like the break. It's sort of rest and digest. It slows you down. Now, the problem with that, when you have trauma, unresolved emotional wounding as a child, is that that you never, we never really get into fully into that rest and digest part. There's always that a little, a little bit of that kind of fight or flight, and it can fire up at any moment. It's like, it reminds me of, um, I'm a bit of an aviation buff. So, so on uh, aircraft carriers, they have what's called the alert five aircraft. 
which okay. is basically two fighters that are sitting on the deck that are ready to be launched at any time to protect the carrier. So they can, they can be launched within five minutes. That's what they call them, the Alert 5 aircraft. So they can immediately launch into action. And that's what happens with your body. Once you've been alarmed for a long time, that alarm reaction is learned and it, you can fire it up immediately. So anything that even comes close to what your old trauma was will fire you completely into that old alarm cycle. So we never really learn how to get into that kind of parasympathetic rest and digest phase where we can you know, regenerate ourselves, where we can sleep properly, where we can eat properly and that kind of thing. So it really is about learning how to balance, rebalance that autonomic nervous system because typically what happens is when the sympathetic system is on, like fight or flight, when you're playing a sport, you know, you're up playing soccer or whatever, you need that fight or flight activation in your body to kind of mobilize yourself to move. But when you're done and you've had dinner and you're just relaxed and watching Netflix or something like that, you don't want to still be kind of on edge. So you no. want to sort of settle into that kind of rest and digest phase. But those of us with trauma have really a real difficulty letting down that vigilant, that hypervigilance, because a lot of us, like with me, with my dad, I never knew when he was going to go, when he was going to lose it. And he was never abusive or violent, but I, I never, I never knew when he was going to kind of lose it. So there was always a part of me that was like vigilantly waiting, uh, vigilantly waiting for him to go crazy. And, you know, it, he, it may have been 18 months since the last time that he went crazy, but I, for the 18 months, I'd be kind of on edge and watching him is like, you know, is he, is he sad today? Is he extra happy today? Is he whatever? And I think that that's how we learn how to live our lives. And then with that dysregulation and that autonomic nervous system, we learn to perceive threats preferentially. So we'll look at a day and instead of looking at all the great things that are going to happen, we focus on all the negative things that are going to happen. And from a neuroscience point of view, we do have a, a fear bias in our brain. We definitely, human beings, have a bias towards fear because it kept us, it kept us alive. You know, 50, 60, 70,000 years ago, fear kept us alive. And unfortunately, you know, now we translate that fear, which used to be a physical danger, now it's emotional danger. And with social media and, you know, the COVID and all that kind of stuff that's happening now, if you have a tendency towards anxiety in your system, it'll really, it'll come to the surface now because we're so separate and so isolated now from each other that any, if you had a tendency towards anxiety, it's really starting to show up. So basically what, what body therapies do to come back to your original question was that they, they help you realign that sort of balance between the, the fight or flight and the rest and digest so that when the fight or flight comes off, the rest and digest can come up. So, and the fight or flight can really fade into the background and you can really let your guard down and rest and truly rest and replenish as opposed to always having this sort of unconscious, you know, what if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? Which of course affects your thoughts because your thoughts are a reflection of your body and your thoughts just keep going and going and going. So if your body's still got a little bit of alarm in it, you're always going to be focusing on the potential threat, which really robs you of life. You know, because life, life comes from the feeling in your body. It doesn't come from the thinking in your mind. Hell yeah. Your body feels good. You feel good. Hell yeah. Ah, I love that. No, hell yeah. And um, how you said when you're in that fight and flight all the time, on edge all the time, not only does that mess with your mind, it messes with like the hormones in your body. You're like actually expressing totally. different hormones. And because like if, if you're constantly in that state, like I think those hormones, 
like it doesn't lead to just mental illness that can lead to physical illness which a lot of science is actually like starting to figure out right yeah yeah like if you have excessive cortisol in your system you know you're more likely to develop arthritis um you're more likely to develop thyroid issues all this kind of stuff and and so it just it show and then there's another you know there's the vagus nerve which is the main nerve of the parasympathetic rest and digest system which a lot of um a lot of therapies focus on now it, because the vagus nerve is is a very large nerve it's the 10th cranial nerve and most of its fibers go from the body up to the brain um there is 20 percent of them that go down from the brain that, that instructs the body but it just shows the influence that your body has on your mind and they they're doing this uh, procedure in the states now called a stellate ganglion block for combat veterans so what they do is these men have come and women have come back from the fight and their body is still in this, I could be killed at any moment phase, right? That's, that's how they feel, even though they know they're in their bed and they're in their house and they're back in the States and they're fine. Their, their mind knows that, but their body doesn't. So they inject this stellate ganglion, which is this little patch of nervous tissue in the neck and they block it with an anesthetic and immediately they feel better. So what, what happens is when they, when you take all that noise coming from your body, that hypervigilant uh, noise that just keeps people thinking that they have to be on guard, when you block that, then the mind can actually do its job, which is to sort of look around and see how can I thrive in the world? How can I feel better about myself? How can I, you know, make a difference in the world? But if you're always, you know, if you're always in this state of, you know, fight or flight, like you're in a combat zone, which a lot of people with emotional trauma, childhood trauma have, it's hard to make a difference in the world and in your own life, because you're not living in your body, you're living in your head. Yeah, and yeah, 100%. And it is kind of like, uh, that's sad. It is sad. And like, so you're talking about the somatic therapy. Yeah. And so this seems like a it seems like a very like um, in my background in, in meditation as well. It seems like a very like presence kind of like mm-hmm. mindfulness in your body, like bring the attention to your body and learn to keep it on your body so that you can pay attention to sensations as they come and go. Yeah. And acclimatize because you're going to get positive sensations. and You're going to get negative sensations. But what happens typically is we feel negative sensation in our body that we may not even be aware of. And that affects our mind. And then our mind starts perceiving threats when there really aren't any. And if there aren't any threats, we, may, we start making them up, which is basically the source of worry. That's where worry comes from, is this alarm in the body that the mind has to, the mind has to do something. The left hemisphere has to do something with that. So it makes a worry. And then all of a sudden, there's less, there's less uncertainty because the mind has made sense of what the feeling is in the body. And the feeling in the body is so unconscious, we're not aware of it, that we assume it's our mind that's causing the problem, when it's not actually our mind that's causing. Our mind is basically just the translator. It's the interpreter of what's happening in our body. So it's not really coming from the mind specifically. It's just the mind's interpretation of this old alarm, usually from childhood, that's stored in your body. Mm-hmm. And that's when you're like, get back to feeling town. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you got to do it slowly, though, Nori. Like you can't, you can't jump right back into feeling. And I think a lot of the, the therapies in the 70s and 80s had this sort of, uh, uh, they would put, put you in this cataclysmic situation where, you know, you would be reminded of, say, if your father like physically abused you, you know, they put you on a mat, you know, they, they would have these kind of boxing things or whatever, and you would kick and scream and go, I hate you, dad, like all you do, you know, 
And all that did, well, in about 2% of the people, it really helped them. And in about 98% of the people that re-traumatized them. No, so it's like, you know, so, so the two, 2% of people that it helped, they would become the testimonials for this particular type of therapy. And the 98% of people that it made worse, we never heard from them again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so it is one of those things that you really have to be careful uh, when you go into the body that you do it slowly. Cause it, you can't, you know, there's no, there's this feeling like there's this catharsis therapy that if you get it all out, that all of a sudden all the pieces are going to just sort of back into place perfectly. And that's not what happens. You know, you basically have to sort of pull the body along like a puppy. Like you've got to train it. You've got to train your body to feel um, to allow yourself to feel those emotions and realize that you don't have to think. I wrote an article a while ago called cognitive bypassing which is a, a, toy, a, a term that I coined, uh, meaning that people have to compulsively explain every feeling that they have. And basically, rather than just feeling it and allowing it to be there and acclimatizing to it, we have to explain it in our heads. Like mm-hmm. grief, you know? like if, if you lose your, you lose your pet or a parent or whatever, there's a lot of grief there. And I think we just have to feel that grief. And if we don't, if we don't allow ourselves to feel that grief, we never metabolize it. You know, if we're always going in it, well, it's, you know, he did this and he was so great about that. And I, you know, you really have to just sort of sit there with the feeling 30, 60, 90, 120 seconds, and just allow yourself to feel the feeling. And the little mantra that I, that I use is sensation without explanation is basically you sense it without explaining it. Now, not every time, because we do need to kind of have this coherent, what Dr. Dan Siegel calls a coherent narrative of our life. We need to be able to have a a a structure, a cognitive structure to put it into, but we can't be completely cognitive because we never process the emotion if we're always just thinking. So, so many times that we, when we feel bad, it's like, or you're in a breakup, it's like, oh, could I have done this? Or maybe if I did that, she'd still be with me or whatever. It's like, no, just feel the pain. Just allow yourself to feel the pain. It won't kill you. It really won't. It won't. And and it's just, it's, but what will kill you is the freaking thoughts that you have. Yeah. You know, just realize that, that your thoughts are basically just making sense of what you feel in your body. And then, you know, use a combination. Like sometimes you can try and explain what happened. Absolutely. But sometimes just feel it. Just allow yourself to feel and process the emotion. Otherwise, otherwise you never metabolize it. You just, it, the emotion will stay there forever because you've never given it a chance. You've never given yourself a chance to really just feel it. You've always kind of bypassed into thinking. Mm-hmm. No, and that's great. That is really great because when you do bypass into thinking, you're right. Like that's where you're you're getting away from the connection to yourself, which is the whole place where the healing comes from. So let's like I, I like this. So we're talking about how we want to get back to feel in town. I like saying it like that yeah, now. Sure. <laughs> but uh, so we're talking about getting back to feeling, and yeah. uh, you you said that in a perfect way. Like we sh- we need to like we have to be like uh, cognitive of like that this can be hurtful for some people. So you get, you ease your way back in there. So yeah. if we're talking about um, like different things, like presence, like slowly learning to feel something like do it, like ease your way into it. Breath work is another thing I do. Yeah. Like um, you can do slow minute long breath works where you um, I've seen you even say this on your Instagram where you can just slow down your breath and learn to like just feel the sensations and yeah just doing this one two minutes if if you're in an anxious state and you're not used to this this is the best way to kind of do it because you're easing your way into it and you're not like jumping in and uh, so let's kind of like maybe 
talk a little bit about psychedelics because psychedelics might be the one where you're just jumping, jumping in. Yeah. And that's why there is a danger to that. Cause like psychedelics is a big thing that I talk about on this podcast as well. Sure. And like ayahuasca is a big thing that changed so much of my life and really taught me about um, getting into your feelings and getting out of your head. Um, that's one thing ayahuasca definitely gave to me. But like you were saying, jumping in can sometimes be very dangerous. Can be. And yeah. so um, maybe can you give us your thoughts on psychedelics in that sense yeah. and the dangers behind them as well? Well, a lot, of, a lot of people are asking me about psychedelics because of what I write in the book, because I've done ayahuasca, psilocybin, um, and, well, MDMA, which isn't a true psychedelic. And uh, what's the other one? Oh, LSD. I don't know if I said that, but LSD, ayahuasca, psilocybin, and MDMA, which MDMA isn't a true psychedelic, not to get high, but just to try and examine my own anxious mind because I was practically suicidal at the time. I was like, I needed some, some change. And people ask me, should I do it? And I say, well, yes and no. I mean, it does help. But what I, what I do suggest to people is do six months of somatic experiencing therapy first so that you have some sort of basis in there. Um, because, you know, psychedelics are really, you know, it'll blow the back of your head off. It was, you know, hands down the most frightening experience of my life without a doubt. And the thing about psychedelics is that normally we have, you know, a division between the conscious and the unconscious in our mind. You know, there's a lot of unconscious programs that we run um, insecurity, you know, uh, I don't like my body. I don't like this about myself. A lot of it's unconscious. It's not, it comes in and your mind is conscious thinking, but it's unconscious. And then the border between self and other is, is there as well. So, so what, what psychedelics do is that they blur that border between the conscious and the unconscious. So all of a sudden, you know, th- dreamlike stuff seems really real. You see like green dragons and flames. And, and so what would normally be reserved to dreams is, is actually in your conscious awareness because that boundary has been blurred now because the, the psychedelic has taken that away. And the, the boundary between self and other, I don't know about you, but there was this feeling like, like I was one with everything, right? So, so it was, uh, which is, you know, kind of reminds me of that, uh, the, the joke that says uh, um, the Buddhist goes to the uh, hot dog vendor and says, make me one with everything, you know? So <laughs> I mean, that's cute. I like it's that. Cu- it's cute. It's, it's kind of a punny. It's not, it's not a great joke, but it, it sort of gets the point across. It's like, so you feel one with everything. Like you don't see the separation between you and the rest of the world. Everything kind of gets, you know, reverted down to its, vibrational elements and then when you see that you're just a part of that you know universal vibration it it kind of it's it kind of reminds me of the astronauts you know when they 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 get out and they look back at this small little earth and they realize that the the meaninglessness of their petty kind of worries about things when when you start to get a reference like that so i think the psychedelics do do that for you um but you know so many people with anxiety have control issues and the thing about the psychedelics as you know is it takes away all your control you Mm -hmm. don't have any control anymore so if you spent your life controlling things and that's where your safety quote-unquote safety lies you take a psychedelic it's going to blow the back of your head off like Mm -hmm. it's going to be pretty painful 
So, and it took me about two years to sort of get back to normal after ayahuasca. LSD, not so bad, but ayahuasca was one of the ones that just basically just kind of took me back to just a very, very uh, emotionally fragile state. But the lessons were great. Uh, but it took me about two years, you know, to get back to normal. I have a, a new puppy and she just had surgery yesterday. So, so that's what you hear in the background. Oh, <laughs> nice. So, I yeah, so. I think, I mean, I, my, my, it really, ha- one of the things I say in the book is that, you know, don't do it, uh, read the book and, and basically let me take one for the team, you know, let I'll do it. I'll explain to you exactly kind of what happened with me and the benefits that I got from it. Um, which are kind of in a way cognitive. Like I learned that my alarm, my anxiety, what I called anxiety was actually this state of alarm that was held in my body. And that was invaluable. I mean, I really, that really helped me understand and write this book. And I don't think this book would have been written without LSD Mm. because as an academic, you know, medical doctor, neuroscientist, developmental psychologist, you know, I never would have come across this. So, so it allowed me what, what, what the psychedelics did do is they, they, they screwed up my mind so much that I was able, as I was coming out of it, I couldn't do it while I was in it, but as I was coming out of it, I was, I was using all that background that I have in neuroscience and and medicine and developmental psychology while my mind was still not um, linear. So then it was like, okay, well, how can I use this information that I'm getting from this quote unquote trip? to my, my benefit and the benefit of my patients. And it re- really was, you know, I was told, and I don't know where this comes from, but it's like, it's the alarm that needs to be healed. It's not the mind, you know, the, the mind is secondary. The, the problem is the old trauma that's been held in your body and that's what you need to heal. And, and most of the traditional therapies are going after, you know, this bailing water. They're, they're making you feel better, but they're not actually fixing the underlying condition. So to fix the underlying condition, you have to really connect with that alarm that's in your system. And that's what I learned from, from, the, from the psychedelics uh, was that my, what I called anxiety and what I thought was based in my mind was actually this sense of alarm that was locked in my body from the trauma of growing up with my schizophrenic father. Mm-hmm. And uh, yep. And honestly, I, I'm a guy who kind of does recommend people to do uh, yeah. psychedelics when it comes to like, I, I've, I've seen, I, I've been doing ayahuasca for years now and I've seen the amount of healing that's done for people's trauma. Absolutely. But the way you said it, like spend six months before, do some sort of like somatic experience uh, therapy or whatever. I, I, I say you have to find a way to connect to your body before, connect to your breath. And how you said psychedelics take away control and somebody with anxiety, that's the one thing they just don't want. For me, it's like I had years of meditation um, experience before I did psychedelics. So for me, I um, connecting to my breath was something I was really good at doing. So when I went into a a psychedelic experience where it started getting too, too much for me, I could always find my breath and that finding my breath always gave me at least a tiny bit of control in an otherwise uncontrollable situation. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me. That that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And okay. So uh, I'm almost, uh, we're almost done and I almost want to get back to, uh, I want to ask you the question of the podcast, but before that, you do refer to yourself as like a rebel doctor. Um, You kind of like, because 
you say shit that doctors aren't talking about. You're saying yeah. stuff that the medical industry isn't talking about. I don't know. Can you, I don't know. What, what's your idea of why they're not? I know you said time at the beginning with patients, yeah. but how about the education? Because like, why aren't they educated on any of this? And now that we're getting a lot of uh, scientific data and like research coming out showing that like childhood trauma and yeah. like a lot of this other stuff are such a huge part of disease and illness. Right. Why, why isn't this more widespread? Well, I think, you know, doctors are very reductionist. They like an explanation for everything. You know, that's one of the reasons why we became medical doctors as opposed to, you know, naturopaths or chiropractors who have a little more of an ethereal approach, you know, kind of a, um, and, and typically naturopaths and chiropractors have better bedside manners than a lot of doctors do. Because of that, I think because a lot of doctors are academic, it, it, the academic challenge is one of the things that attracts them to medicine. The problem with having to have an explanation for everything is sometimes your explanations are wrong, right? So if you think that, that mental illness resides in the brain um, and you focus all your therapies around that and you're wrong, you're not going to heal a lot of people. I mean, and that's why I think medication. And the other thing is that we have medication to use as doctors. And I prescribed thousands, I had thousands and thousands of, I prescribed so many, so many uh, medications. And, and I think in a lot of cases, they're warranted. They're useful. I, I think they were life-saving in a lot of cases. But I think, you know, the thing that I like to bring up with doctors is there's that great saying that says, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm. So if you're a drug hammer, which we are, and I'm not saying physicians are pawns of the pharmaceutical companies, because I don't believe in that. Um, physicians are one of the most, a lot of them are rebels. A lot mm -hmm. of them, a lot of them have, uh, they want to do their own thing. They want to, they want to treat their own way and nobody tells them what to do. That's the reason why a lot of the reason why we became doctors, because we didn't want to have a boss. So so there's, but it is very pharmaceutically based and that's how we're trained. So we're trained to have this go-to. So if you have a go-to where you can end up end a, an interview uh, in a minute and a half by handing someone a prescription, or you can talk to them for another half hour, 45 minutes about, you know, their childhood trauma and being trauma informed, most doctors are going to go for the prescription. It's part of their makeup. It's part of our framework typically because we're comfortable with that particular environment and we're not comfortable with dealing with trauma in a way. I think that's starting to change a little bit, but I think if you're looking at medical doctors as a rule, they reduce things. They want to reduce things. They go down, they go into medicine because it's a reductionist. Allopathic medicine is a very reductionist field. And there's a tremendous amount of good that allopathic medicine is, has. Um, because a lot, you know, allopathic medicine gets really slagged by a lot of people, um, assuming that what's natural is best. And I always remind people that arsenic and hemlock are both natural compounds ha, 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 very quickly, but it is one of those things where we're not trained. It's not part of our psychological makeup actually to go into the more, um, kind of semi-spiritual, more ethereal realm as, as physicians, um, they like knowing what's going on. They like, you know, cut it or drug it, you know, and it, it is one of those things. And I get a little uncomfortable talking about this with, about doctors, but that's kind of how we are. 
So people go to doctors thinking they're getting a psychotherapy and you're not, you know, we're not mm -hmm. trauma informed for one. Uh, we, we have a strong pharmaceutical base because that's, that's where we're trained. We're trained as, you know, basically here's the, here's the, the medication that will make you feel better. And the problem with that is that, you know, the reason why people have anxiety, depression, OCD, eating disorders is, is because there's an underlying issue. And if you, if you block that issue, if you numb that issue with medication, they never really have a chance to heal it. And a lot of them don't want to go back into it. You don't want to go back into feeling town. A lot of people would rather take a medication, but the problem with the medication is like I was saying earlier, if you numb yourself to one person, you numb yourself to all people. If you numb yourself with a medication, you numb every aspect of your life. So it really is this kind of, um, and there are some people that need medication. There is no two ways about that. Their trauma was so deep that I don't think any type of healing is really going to, you know, fix their underlying condition. It may help it, but it's not going to fix it. Uh, and those people do need medication, I think. But medi the medication is far overprescribed because tra trauma is not something doctors are aware of or familiar with it. And the thing about doctors is they want to feel confident in what they're doing. And if they're not confident in this kind of, you know, trauma informed aspect, which most doctors aren't, they're going to go for what they know, which is basically medication. So it's changing slowly. Uh, I, I believe as somatic therapies get more um, mainstream and as, and as, uh, as doctors become more aware uh, that there's another way. I think it will start coming into the into their their use a lot more rather than going right to medication. But for now, and for the foreseeable future, I think uh, psychedelics are going to change psychiatry quite a bit. I think somatic therapy will slowly kind of creep in there. So those are the main changes coming up in the next five to ten years for for psychotherapy because it really hasn't done a whole lot. You know, it helps people feel better in the short term, but I don't think talk therapy actually heals anyone in the long term that was a very long answer i don't know if it, it hit the points that you it, wanted to but it hit the exact points that i wanted to and like i think you said it perfectly because honestly my parents have both like went through cancer and stroke and stuff like that in the last decade and i the last thing i want to do is shit on doctors in the medical field yeah. because i i see how good they're doing and how they have the best interest at their heart yeah. But like, like you said it, like a lot of them, a lot of doctors don't really study trauma. No. A lot of them don't, uh, and they need to have confidence in what they're doing. So totally. yeah, uh, you explained it perfectly. And I think in just a way that's like, well done. And like, I think the best thing we can do is just kind of promote these other therapies, like somatic yeah. experience therapies, possibly psychedelics or anything like that to like say like hey there's a different way and hopefully these two ways merge in the future yeah um all right uh dr russell kennedy one more question for you and then we're getting out of here uh but uh yeah russell god yay or nay you know i i think it really comes for me it comes down to a sense of consciousness like i, I don't believe in in some deity that you know over sits in a chair and overrules or over you know oversees all of us i think that there is this element of consciousness that pervades all of us and i think what the human brain does is it wants to make something solid similar to what doctors do it wants to make solid out of something that's really ethereal 
So what it does is it makes a God in their own, you know, in their own image. And I think we also, as human beings, have this underlying kind of compulsion to worship. We want to worship. We worship our movie stars. We worship our sports heroes. We want to worship. And I think that, that what happens is that we, we kind of concretize that sense of, of, of need to worship into something that forms like a deity. Whereas what I, what I look at is more that there's a, a form of consciousness that pervades everything that is just trying to experience itself. And it'll experience itself in negative ways and positive ways. And I think we just have to kind of go with that. So yeah, is there, is there God? Yeah, I think in the form of consciousness, you could say God, because there's something we all want to worship. Um, but I don't think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, like a monotheistic deity, put it that way. Hey, I, uh, all right. I love that answer. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Russell. Um, please let my audience know uh, where they can get a hold of you, where they can follow you and uh, tell them about your book and anything else you want to promote, please. Sure. Yeah, you can find me if you just Google the Anxiety MD or you can Google the, the Anxiety RX, which is the name of my book. And it basically just chronicles, you know, my life, my, how I healed, how my patients healed. And, you know, my experiences on LSD and, you know, just a very non-traditional way of healing anxiety, because what we're doing right now in traditional healing isn't cutting it. It isn't working. So it just come out on audiobook uh, on Audible. You can just um, check uh, Anxiety RX and uh, it comes up that way. And it's it's sold thousands of copies. I'm very, very happy with it. And uh, I love the audiobook because I put humor in there, you know, as well. Hell as, yeah. <laughs> as, yeah. I bring my, my uh, academic brain gets going on this and, and uh, it wasn't as funny as I would like to been today, but you know, it's, it's all about information and it's all good. It's all happens the way it's supposed to. That's awesome. Uh, yo, thank you so much for doing this, Russell, man. I Thanks, appreciate man. this. All right. That was another episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And share it with like-minded people. I really do appreciate that. You can check me out at NewerKidY on Instagram or check out my website, NewerKidY.com. You can see my comedy. You can see my comedy dates that are coming up and all that other information. We're part of the comedy here often, Podcast Network on 604 Records. But I'll see you next time on another episode of God Yay! Warning.